Welcome to the fourth in a series of podcasts brought to you by the Bee Expert Panel of the Ontario Animal Health Network. This panel is comprised of a dedicated group of specialists working in government, university, laboratory, and a beekeeping practice. This group meets regularly to discuss bee disease and health issues in Ontario. It is the intent of this program to monitor and protect the health of honeybees in the province. My name is Wally Haddad, and in this podcast I'll be interviewing Paul Kelly. Paul is the research and apiary manager at the Honeybee Research Centre at the University of Guelph, and Paul is a very active member of Ontario's beekeeping community. If you've ever encountered Paul at an industry conference or a beekeeping course, you will know just how, how knowledgeable and passionate he is about beekeeping. So without further ado, I would like to thank you for joining me today, Paul. Could you please tell us a bit about the Honeybee Research Centre and the work that goes on there? Uh, well, thanks, Well, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to come and talk to you about what we do. Um, we, uh, our mandate is uh, research and education with honeybees, and that includes all as- aspects of bees, pollination, from pollination to hive management. And our research focus is honeybee health. Uh, so with the current issues that bees are experiencing, we're well positioned to be dealing with those, and that is our focus on the research side. But I'm here to talk a bit more about the education side of what we're doing. Um, we keep three to four hundred colonies of bees, uh, depending on how you count them, um, about 300 full-size hives, and another hundred or so colonies that we call mating nucleus colonies, because we do bee breeding and queen rearing as well. So we are involved in all aspects of uh, beekeeping, from honey production, pollen production, propolis, beeswax, pollination, and I like to think that we're better at teaching these uh, uh, activities if we're actually doing them ourselves. And so uh, yeah, that those things tie hand in hand. Uh, we do a lot of public outreach uh, with our program. We have tours of our facilities, everything from preschool kids to seniors groups coming out there. Uh, I do speaking engagements and with the tours, demonstrations, uh, speaking engagements, and so on, I personally do about 100 presentations a year, so it uh, keeps me busy, and that's just my side of it. Uh, there are other people on our staff and faculty that uh, are also doing some presentations. Uh, we have uh, a student apiculture club here that's been running uh, since at least 1912. So it's been going for over 104 years. And our beekeeping program started in 1894, so it's been going even longer. Uh, but our student apiculture club uh, have do public education. They also uh, produce high products for sale. And the money that they generate from those sales is used to support beekeeping development projects uh, around the world. This year they're uh, helping out some beekeepers in Vietnam that lost their colonies to flooding. So we have uh, a volunteer program, uh, students that are taking apiculture at university uh, volunteer with us, and also students that take our weekend-long beekeeping courses volunteer with us as well. So we try and give people as many different opportunities to learn about bees as possible. Uh, They... Lots more I could say. We teach uh, about 600 students a year at the in the apiculture course at the university a, a for credit course, wow. and it's we think it's the most popular course on campus. 
Uh, and it's, uh, I remember I took that course myself uh, 35 years ago, and that's what kind of got me steered into uh, uh, this career that I love to this day. Yeah. When I was going to university, actually, and I always heard about that course, and I'm kicking myself now that I didn't take it uh, back when I had the chance. It's uh, it's hard to fit them all in. There's just so many great courses yeah. here, uh, but it's... Um, I hear a lot from a lot of people that took the course 30, 40, even 50 years ago, and uh, they oft, a lot of them say that it was one of their favorite courses. Could you run us through the different types of beekeeper training resources offered through the Honeybee Research Center? Um, sure, Wally. Uh, we, uh, probably the biggest thing we're doing is the weekend courses that we offer for new beekeepers and uh, relatively new beekeepers. Uh, we started these courses uh, in the 1990s and uh, they've been extremely popular. Uh, we've expanded the, uh, the number of participants we take and the number of courses that we're offering. Uh, we could do even more. We're somewhat limited by our facilities because we try to keep these uh, courses hands-on, which means getting out into the bee yard and looking at colonies in many different situations. So uh, it's not easy to do that in a larger venue like on campus here. So we do all these courses out on Stone Road at Townsend House, our, which is one part of our Honeybee Research Centre. And uh, those courses, as I mentioned, are hands-on. We don't let people use gloves. Uh, they are, do protect themselves with uh, a veil over their face. But uh, by getting them used to working with bees without gloves, they are... Their hands are much more capable, and they also uh, get to experience bees walking on them, which is something you have to get used to as a beekeeper. Mm -hmm. Our uh, number one activity by our evaluation forms is petting the bees. So we get people to lay their hands right on the bees and see what that feels like. And uh, I f it's actually better for a beekeeper to work without gloves because you're not there isn't the risk of spreading diseases that way. Uh, if you're wearing gloves that are covered in high products and bee stings, it riles bees up, it can spread diseases. And um, a few stings are actually good for a beekeeper. You're actually more prone to developing an allergy if you get just a few stings. Uh, the average person that gets no stings won't develop an allergy. A beekeeper that gets lots of stings won't develop an allergy. But those that have kind of an intermittent exposure to bee stings are prone to developing an allergy. Mm -hmm. So we recommend people just get stung, get used to it. You can get, you get over it pretty quickly. Um, beekeepers' families sometimes develop an allergy because they're exposed less than the beekeeper but more than the average person. Uh, but that's enough about stinging. It's not all stinging. In fact, as a beekeeper, you kind of forget about that side of it after a while. Uh, we've got, uh, that course runs every year the last weekend in April and the first weekend in May, and we do our registration for that course in early January. Uh, we're f when we started that course uh, in, the, in the 90s, uh, it, it was basically the only one available, but now there are, I would think, at least 40 different beekeeping courses in the province, including uh, many that are run by Ontario Beekeepers Association Tech Transfer Program. And uh, when we started ours, they, that, they, they hadn't started courses yet, but 
some of the uh, students working with us went on to work with the tech transfer program. And their early courses were more or less modeled on our course, but they've gone way beyond that and expanded them into many different topics. And so it's good for us because the uh, when we have uh, a surplus of uh, people that want to register for a course, we have somewhere to refer them on to and uh, without any qualification because I know the OBA courses are extremely good. Yeah, and we spoke with Les um, about the OBA courses that they offer and they do quite a bit, but um, I know that they're actually reaching compa uh, their capacity too um, and hopefully they can get some more courses out uh, uh, for people to take. They're very popular as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one one uh, other uh, relatively new activity that we've got going on, because there is such a huge surge in interest in getting involved in beekeeping, we felt the need to create more resources. We're not able to uh, take in as many people as we'd like. Uh, I'm hoping to build a new building at some point, in which case we would be able to take more people in. Uh, but... What we're doing in the meantime is we've created uh, videos for beekeepers. And we this past summer, uh, with the money we generated from a crowdfunding campaign, lots of different people donated towards this project. And we were able to hire a full-time videographer for the summer last year. And that allowed us to create 33 beekeeping videos, all on specific skills from very basic level skills to advanced level skills. And uh, we did that as part, partly as a backup to the courses so that people had something to go home with, refresh their memory on what we've taught them in the courses, but also for uh, people that can't get into courses and as backup resources for all the other courses that are taught in the province. Uh, there's a lot of courses being taught by beekeeping supply companies, uh, small beekeepers, small beekeeping operations, big beekeeping operations, but this provides a resource that, that gives a, kind of, at least one method of doing everything that you need to do as a beekeeper. Uh, so no methods that we found that have worked over time and teaching methods that we found work with our, our courses as well. So those videos are now uh, being viewed about 15,000 times a week. That's impressive. Yeah, it's uh, gone over quite well. It's great to see that level of interest from uh, from new beekeepers and uh, veteran beekeepers alike. It is, and with the, because they're hosted on a YouTube format, we can access statistics and analysis of uh, statistics for uh, looking at the things like the demographics, uh, what topics people are most interested in. Uh, because there are comments with these videos, we can answer questions uh, that come up as people are viewing them. Uh, we're not, we're, there's going to be some things that we've missed or information that could be clarified. And so that format gives us the opportunity to be able to continue the education beyond the production of the video. Uh, going back to the demographics, we uh, see from looking at who's viewing these videos that it's... Uh, quite an age spectrum uh, from 12 years to in the 90s and it's broken down on their uh, format into groups of about five years say 12 to 17 for example 17 to 24 and uh, it's amazing how consistent 
as you go up the age range the viewing is. It's about 13% for each of the different age uh, uh, groups. Um, so we know that people, young people are interested, uh, seniors are interested, and everybody uh, in between. Formerly, it was mostly pe people that already had experience, that grew up in a beekeeping family, or people that were looking at it as a, more of a retirement project. But beekeeping's cool now, and yeah. uh, lots of young people want to get involved in it. And uh, so these resources, we think, will be able to uh, help people out. Excellent. Uh, and what initially drove you to start offering these beekeeping courses? Well, that's, uh, it's kind of remarkable that there's been this much change over such a short period of time. But back in the 90s, at the time we started our weekend-long beekeeping courses, there were no other beekeeping courses uh, offered to new beekeepers. Uh, there were university-level courses, uh, but nothing really offered in a practical way for new beekeepers. There had been several programs at different community colleges, uh, that, but nothing was running at that time. And so um, I was given the opportunity to start up a beekeeping course, which meant I could create a course the way I thought it should be created to be able to give people the skills that they needed to get confidence initially and then get a foundation to base their knowledge on. Uh, any beekeeper is into a lifelong learning process what we do is provide a really good solid foundation and uh, the ability to confidently go in a bee yard, open up a beehive and uh, have, have some uh, skills that they're in their back pocket to be able to do that. So we basically created the course because there wasn't uh, any available and uh, it's kind of grown from there. Not that we're responsible for it growing, but uh, it's just... Uh, with people wanting to produce their own food, support local initiatives, uh, there's more interest. And then when the, the honeybee health crisis started when we in 2006, when we started experiencing really high losses and bees got, were in the news uh, every day, that's created uh, a, huge, a huge surge of interest in getting involved in beekeeping. Many people are wanting to keep bees just to help out with this uh, perceived crisis. We're actually, yeah, I'm, I, when people ask me about a honeybee decline, I, I'm a little uncomfortable with that term because we in Ontario have done very, very well. We have more beehives than we've ever had, but that doesn't mean there's a, uh, isn't a problem. We're also experiencing, on average, 35% losses every year. So what our educational efforts uh, try to accomplish is we're trying to uh, help people learn how to deal with all these health, health issues, different ways of managing colonies to, to um, minimize the effects of these uh, diseases and pests and parasites, pesticides and so on. But we're also trying to teach self-sufficiency so that uh, beekeepers are able to compensate for these losses. And my approach to that is to, uh, we divide colonies to get new colonies. So what I recommend to people is to make up your losses this year for what you're going to experience next year. So, for example, if you, a beekeeper's goal is to have 10 hives, 
then with 35% loss, they should go into winter with 13.5 hives. Um, I'm not being serious about the <laughs> 0.5 there. But if they are uh, going into winter with a larger number of colonies, uh, when they lose that 35%, which is perfectly normal, then they're back down to the colony numbers that they want, and there's no crisis. They're not, uh, they don't lose their bees every year and have to buy new bees every year. And then after about three years of that, quit beekeeping. So our goal is to make it uh, possible for beekeepers to keep their bees alive and uh, make up for those losses that they're going to experience. That's great. Uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Or A lot of people approach us uh, wanting to get into beekeeping or at least want to do something to help bees. And there are lots of other things that people can do to help bees other than become a beekeeper themselves. I'm not trying to discourage people from becoming a beekeeper, but uh, if, if that's a long-term goal, in the meantime, what they can do is do things that support honeybees and other, other pollinators. Uh, there's a lot of resources. Uh, our website has a lot of great information on it uh, with this topic, but a lot of um, resources available to, for people to know what flowers to plant for bees. And that can be garden flowers. Uh, I actually try and encourage people to plant trees and shrubs because those provide long-term, sustainable kind of uh, production of flowers. And bees like to work on masses of flowers, and trees and shrubs automatically mass the flowers together. So they can be doing that. And uh, also uh, supporting the local beekeeping community by purchasing local honey. And have a good look at the label to see where that honey actually comes from, and that way you know you can you actually are supporting uh, uh, local beekeepers. And there are other pollinators that we can be supporting too, native pollinators, and lots of different uh, uh, methods of doing that. Uh, it's not all about honeybees; that happens to be what I work with. But uh, I think we should be doing lots to support all pollinators. Mm -hmm. Going back, I don't want to derail too much, but going back to the uh, Purchasing local honey, I know that uh, those labels on a lot of the um, honey being sold in stores, they can be very misleading because it could say, you know, uh, Canada, Canadian honey, but it may not necessarily be from Canada. It could just be labeled in Canada or packaged in Canada or you know, something along those lines. Yes, we've, as a beekeeping community, have felt for years that our labels are uh, not really serving the beekeeping community that well because uh, the, there's the grading classifying of honey so when it honey says Canada number one white that's grade and class but or it could say Ontario number one white again grade and class but that's the standard that that uh, quality that honey is judged at that doesn't mean where it's from so a, a product can say Canada number one and not be from Canada uh, the, so that's, we feel is kind of misleading, but it, it uh, for example, if you buy fruits and vegetables uh, in a grocery store, you know full well where they come from, but you don't necessarily know where the honey is coming from. They, if it's imported e even interprovincially or internationally, you are required to say where, where the origin is, and it's in order of, just like ingredients, in order of percentage. So... Um, if honey, for example, is partly from Argentina, 
but more from Canada. On the back of the label, it will say a product of Canada and Argentina. So, but that's in very small font mm -hmm. on the back of the label, and we feel that most people miss that and maybe just see the Ontario number one. Uh, so there's there is. Uh, uh, a problem of perception there when people uh, don't look really closely at that label. Well, that wraps up our interview for today. Thank you, Paul. And to our listeners, I hope that this podcast has inspired you to attend some of the beekeeping courses or watch the videos offered by the University of Guelph's Honeybee Research Centre. Perhaps you may even wish to support pollinators in Ontario by planting pollinator-friendly gardens. So until next time, my name is Wally Haddad, and on behalf of the Bee Expert Panel of the Ontario Animal Health Network, I would like to thank you for listening.